0: Welcome to the politicalbetting.com polling matters podcast and we're treating this as something of an end of term special. The teachers are heading off for their summer holidays and so are people in Westminster. This year is very different to 2016. This time last year we had the aftermath of Brexit, a Labour leadership crisis where Owen Smith was challenging Jeremy Corbyn and we were just about ready to find out that Theresa May would take over from David Cameron as Prime Minister. Things, believe it or not, feel that little bit quieter this time. Yes, we had the shock general election result but uh, last month. But Theresa May seems to have stemmed the tide so far and Jeremy Corbyn is going on something of a victory lap over the summer. So we're going to take stock on today's episode and uh, understand where we are, what the numbers say and what to look out for when Westminster returns in September. And I'm joined by regular fellow podcasters Rob Vance and Leo Barassi to find out more. Gents, welcome to the show. So I guess the first place to start really is, um, you know, where do we think we are at the moment? I mean, Rob, you've not been on the show for a little while, so welcome back. I mean, what's your take on um, where, where politics in the UK is at the moment?
1: Well, it's a kind of, a kind of stalemate, really. I think the, uh, the Conservative Party uh, are in complete disarray in terms of what on earth they're going to do with, with Brexit. Um, and the Labour Party is divided and unable to really uh, drive home their advantage. Um, you know, the, Theresa May is a wounded Prime Minister, um, being kept in place by a party that doesn't really know what to do instead with either her or or with Brexit. And the Labour Party is fundamentally divided and unable to know what it's going to do about Brexit. Um, when the when the focus is on either of those um, entities, they they are losing out in the polls, as far as I can tell. So when the focus is on Corbyn. Labour start to slip again when the focus is on the Tories, um, the Tories start to slip again. Um, it's kind of the, the opposite way around to what you would normally want in, in any kind of campaign, which is the, the spotlight squarely on you. Uh, both sides seem to be unable to do anything other than fuel stories of division uh, amongst them. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a strange stalemate, particularly going into a long recess where it's going to be dominated by, you know, fairly ridiculous stories, I suspect, which isn't going to do anything to change that stalemate.
0: And, and, and Leo, I mean, I think it, it, Rob summed it up well there. I mean, we, it's a strange situation that we find ourselves in, given just how far ahead and all-conquering Theresa May looked a couple of months ago. Suddenly, both political parties seem quite very, very divided on Brexit, and it's not quite clear which direction the country goes in when we come back in September.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure I really agree with Rob quite so much there. I think, um, sure, the Tories are quite visibly divided, um, and there's there's a sort of... The obvious beginnings of of the battle for succession, but I'm not sure it's quite so clear that labour Labour is is visibly divided. I mean, I think you could make a case that the party is more unified behind its leader than it has been for a few years. Um, That's not saying much. Yeah, it's not saying much, uh, but it's not. You know, it's it's not definitely wrong to say that it's the most united it's been behind its leader since 2005 2006. I mean, you know, that's that's a fair way back. And uh, it you know, it's uh, it's saying The party something. was more is unified
1: it, behind Brown during more or less the entirety of his premiership than it is now, I would say. Well,
2: possibly, possibly. But I mean, I guess, you know, or my, even my, Miliband, my point Frank. is, look, I look, I agree that um, the party has a major problem in deciding what its Brexit position is going to be. But at the moment, I don't think that there is a visible public sense of division. I think there's far less public division uh, in the the public eye of, about Labour than than there was a year ago. I mean, Kieran, you talked about the last leadership. Well, let, well, let's
0: look, let's look at some of that because um, YouGov had a survey out um, earlier this week, looking at last week, actually, sorry, looking at the idea of whether parties were divided or, or undivided. Um, Labour, forty-seven percent say, say divided, but the Tories, 74 um, percent say they're divided. So the public opinion right now has changed dramatically uh, since May, where 65 uh, percent thought the Labour Party were divided and only 29 percent thought the Tories were divided. It's almost gone. It's flipped on its head. Um, so right now, it seems to be the Tories that are tearing themselves apart, at least in the eyes of uh, public opinion. I mean, yeah, like- I mean, I, th- I think
2: that's uh, that that is pretty much what I would think the the pub the the public will be getting from the coverage at the moment. You know, the 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 internal Labour opposition to the leadership's position on Brexit is important and profound and I think it will be an increasing problem, but I think it is not something that is particularly damaging to the public view of the party at the moment.
1: Um yeah no no so so I think we're furiously potentially at the risk of furiously agreeing with each other here, Leo. Um I I, I suppose my point is, um, if, if it, even if it isn't about being divided, the Labour Party isn't seen as being a uh, a natural credible alternative. So, a government in which I think the YouGov numbers have it as seven, like something like three quarters of the, the British population think that it's divide. The party in government is divided. The opposition ought to have more than a two-point lead in the polls at that point in time. I don't I don't know what the historical data is off the top of my head but i suspect it's been a hell of a long time since a prime minister has led a party which three-quarters of the people think is divided um so i suppose my point is not so much necessarily purely about is labor divided is it not divided but at a time when people perceive the leaderships and the memberships of the parties to be you know not in unison and don't see jeremy corbyn still don't see jeremy corbyn necessarily as a preferable prime minister to Theresa May, it's a bizarre kind of stalemate because neither side is able to drive home this advantage. Neither are the Tory party able to seize their agenda and make, you know, headway on, on various different things without being distracted by either positioning for the leadership or the complexities of, of Brexit, which are becoming ever more complex by the day.
2: Well, that's- Yeah, yeah. I mean, Labour, Labour have turned around in a year, a Tory lead of eight, eight and a half-ish points um, July last year to a lead of around two points now, which on the face of it is great. But I think, uh, you know, I I take your point at a time when the Tories are seen as deeply divided to only have a two point lead. I mean, that's that's around where Miliband was in the last few months before that, before the 2015 election. Um, And it wasn't enough Right. Well, exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, it's certainly vastly better for Labour than it was this time last year, but it's sort of historically not great. And I think you could make the argument it's up against a, a government that is seen as, as deeply divided. So I think, yeah, the public view of the party, I don't think Labour's problem is that it's seen as divided, but I think it, it clearly has problems if it's only got a two-point lead against such a uh, publicly divided party.
0: I would, yeah, I, and, I, I would give a slightly more rosy picture for Labour I think because I mean ultimately what you've got is a Conservative party okay we've talked about their divisions over Europe and maybe Labour should be further ahead but this argument around I don't like the word austerity because I don't think it means a lot to people outside Westminster but let's just use it as the shorthand feels a bit like the Conservatives are gradually losing grip of that argument because I mean we saw how they abandoned the um, economic argument through the campaign partly to do with divisions over uh, between Hammond and May um, but it does feel like it's, it's increasingly hard for the Tories to say there's no money there increasingly that the narrative seems to be well where's the money for schools where's the money for hospitals and so on and so forth point two historical comparisons I don't know I feel a bit more jittery about historical comparisons given what just happened in the general election where we saw an unprecedented surge in uh, support for an opposition that was really really far behind so if I was Labour I'd be sitting there thinking well surely things are going to swing our way next time a a bit aren't they and who is this person that's going to replace Theresa May I mean the thing is yeah Labour might only be two points ahead in the polls but the reality is the Tories formed a government with almost the fewest seats they could possibly do so with right if the Tories had lost five or six more seats than than they did I don't see how they necessarily would have got their Queen's speech through. Maybe not five or six, but they were almost on the cusp of um, genuinely losing any potential majority there was. So, I mean, Labour surely will feel confident. And uh, the main reason, I, if I was a Conservative, I'd be worried is, you know, who, who is that replacement going to be? I mean, Rob, what do you think? I mean, ultimately, I mean, Leo mentioned that um, so, there, there's a so- there's, uh, jostling for position, but I mean, yeah. the Tories seem like in limbo. Yeah, but
1: I think they're But I think they going to remain in that place for a long time. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's one of those things where I say this and then immediately, you know, Theresa May comes out after the recess in early September and says, this will be my last party conference as prime minister. I'm going to step <laughs> aside for, for someone new. But I kind of feel like that she's going to carry the can through until Brexit. It will be miserable for her and for pretty much everyone else around her. It'll be great fun and entertaining for everybody watching this in the commentary as they see everybody think for position for the next two years, focus on their own career ambitions rather than, you know, how to make Brexit a success for the country. But that's, I think, what's going to happen. Um, I don't see, even if we take the view that, um, in a sense, lightning can strike twice and Labour can, uh, once again, get, you know, have a 10-point, whatever it might be, surge, a net five-point gain from the Conservatives through the course of a campaign, uh, if we think that that can happen, particularly under the scrutiny of people actually thinking that it might be possible that Jeremy Corbyn's going to be Prime Minister when it wasn't, I don't think, in the last election, though I think that's a slightly different debate that we've perhaps had on the show before. Um, I just I, I think the next election is not going to be for quite a while unless something on top of Brexit comes that topples Theresa May. And I don't know I don't know obviously, you know, events, dear boy, but you know, I don't see any particular reason why the Conservative Party... anybody with an interest in becoming prime minister, would want to necessarily trigger Theresa May going before Brexit. I think that I don't. I don't see whose chances of becoming prime minister are high now and would be lower after Brexit. Other than perhaps David Davis, and you know, in terms of being responsible for that. Mm. Um, well, it's not
2: just about the individual as well. It's about the the sort of the group within the party and and the, the sort of the priorities. Um, when when that's seen as a good time to move, you know. So. But, well,
1: that's I think that's true. And, and so, you know, the chat is that Boris was going to move and didn't have the support necessary to do that in the immediate aftermath of the election. Um, but I think almost more important is the personal calculation of the ambition. I think for Boris, if he'd had a little bit more support, it would have been worthwhile him making an, a genuine move for it. Um, because I think he is someone who... And we've had a fair bit of chat about this recently about whether or not he's going to get sacked in a, in a, in a forthcoming reshuffle or not. But, you know, I think the, 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 you know, we're in very much kind of like very old school kind of house of cards style politics again in terms of this is all being seen through the lens of leadership and so on rather than the issues, um, which I think in many ways doesn't help Labour in terms of winning any of those policy arguments. It might well be that. We will see Tory reversals on various policy positions. We've seen some of that already. Um, Some of that will play to Labour's agenda, but I don't think that necessarily helps Labour. Um, Obviously, from an ideological standpoint, lots of people in the Labour Party would be pleased if the Tory Party do turn the taps back on a little bit in terms of spending and health and education and various other priorities that the the Labour Party campaigned on. But I think that that, if anything, could... Uh, mollify support for Labour and demonstrate that Theresa May is listening and governing as the kind of one-nation Conservative that, at times, she's kind of alluded to, to wanting to be. I,
0: want um, I want to move on and talk a bit about Labour and Brexit, because there was a tweet from Chuck Remuner which I know we've all seen um, two days ago, um, where he tweeted, um, taking single market and customs union membership off the table in the Brexit talks is the Tory position. It should not be Labour's. Now, this felt like quite an overt challenge to the leadership, and at least in policy terms. No one's suggesting that Chukramuna is going to challenge Jeremy Corbyn um, for the leadership anytime soon. But it was striking, Leo, wasn't it? I mean, you know, on this issue, single market membership and generally being pro European, Chukramuna is much more in touch with Labour voters and the Labour membership than Jeremy Corbyn is. But, 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 my suspicion is that when push comes to shove, Labour supporters commitment to Corbyn is stronger than their commitment to Europe, but I don't know what you think
2: Yeah, I think it's true that uh, it's a no-win game at the moment for someone who's identified as an anti-Corbynite to stake out a policy position, however important it is on something as fundamental as Europe, against Corbyn as a way of trying to shift the party and potentially trying to uh, trying to challenge uh, Corbyn's uh, uh, hold on it I mean, it's absolutely right. You know, uh, from the uh, um, I mean, there's various polls that show this, but just looking at the GQR poll for the TUC um, in terms of priorities, 63% of Labour voters prioritise the economy over controlling immigration. 28% prioritise controlling immigration. It's slightly less amongst general voters, but it's it's still it's still clear that most people are prioritising the economy over immigration when push comes to shove. Um, you know, that's fine and uh and that's great. But sort of it's a bit like Alistair Darling in, in twenty ten. Um you can have a plan and in a few years you can be vindicated on it, but you, you kind of you don't really get any prizes for being right. I mean, that's great, but uh Chuck Ramuna having having a position that in in a few years other people might come round to People aren't going to say, "Oh yeah, Chuckle was right all along." Let's let's go back and uh, and you know give give him control of the party or or, or whatever it is that, that he Corp might want.
1: position on Iraq's helped him a fair bit, hasn't it?
0: Um, but isn't that isn't that yeah. woven in, isn't that woven into a wider a wider sense of being the outsider and the anti-Blair? I mean, I, I, I accept. Yeah, sorry.
1: I'm big. I'm big. Slight, slightly.
0: Yeah, no, it's a it's a, fair, it's a fair. Fair point you make
2: there. I, think when um, I don't, of, but I just don't think this is going to be that level of emotiveness.
1: I think what's interesting here, though, is that I, it's something I, sometimes politicians do things just because they think that they have the right thing to do. I know for, uh, as I know a minute ago I was talking about, you know, greasy poles and, um, you know, the skullduggery of House of Cards and so on. But, you know, there is a sizable proportion of the membership um, and an even bigger of the membership pre-2015 that genuinely think that Chucker is absolutely right about this. Um, and a significant proportion of the PLP. Um What's interesting to me about this is there was a very good piece written the other day by a former uh, staffer to a, a sort of campaign group, uh, MEP, who was saying that ultimately, the Labour Party's position on this is just to make the government's life as difficult as possible. And I think in some ways, uh, Chucker falls into a trap with this stuff of actually discussing this in real kind of policy terms, just like we've been discussing. Whereas in fact, the job of an opposition, especially with a minority government, dealing with something that's difficult, and this might not be the supposedly patriotic thing to do, but the thing that you do to damage the government's competence is to just completely and ruthlessly undermine at every stage the coherency of their argument and their ability to execute the business of part right right but you do you do
2: that in a way that that um looks like and yeah, maybe even is defending the national interest you you know you you have a set of challenges that the government has to has to meet and you expose yeah. exposing and competence,
1: so, right yeah and so like but but i think at the moment a lot of if you like moderate labor party politicians and so on are at slight risk of like being, in a sense, too ideological about the positioning of the leadership of the party in terms of its examination of Brexit. We're actually saying that what Britain needs is, um, you know, uh, whatever it is, um, single market access, but not membership. It needs to be, you know, we don't want to be in the customs union, but we want to have, you know, we want want everything on a plate. And unless you as a government can deliver it, then we're not going to be happy and we're going to criticise you at every stage. All right, so it's not the most coherent positioning. But it's essentially what the British people, I think, when you look at the polling data, want. The fact that it's an impossible thing to deliver is a function of Brexit. And the government saying, well, what you want is impossible, repeatedly, only emphasises really what the end point is, which is you have embarked on a course which is damaging to the national interest and so on. So it's, it's just a different... I, I'm at times very, very critical of, 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 the, of the leadership of the Labour Party. But in terms of... Put, making sure that the conversation is full square on how the Conservative Party are going to deliver, the Conservative governments are going to deliver, and a Brexit which is prosperous and principled and, you know, all the rest of it, I think is exactly the right thing to do. And um, in a sense, the chucker whinging about, you know, us developing a Tory position is kind of, might be good for him, but I don't think it's necessarily saying a huge amount about what the Labour Party, are about either, the leadership, the, the future prospects of him as a leader of the Labour Party, or indeed about what the Labour Party should be saying instead of what it's saying at the moment about Europe.
0: Well, I want to talk a bit about public opinion on on Brexit itself, and leaving the political parties to one side, and maybe talking about what voters think, because there's been an awful lot of polling out there about Brexit and about which way things are going to go. And we had a Polling Matters opinion survey uh, a few a couple of weeks ago, which looked at the idea of a second referendum. Um, I think the numbers were 48-41 against. I think that's right and um that's that was a seven point advantage for not not having a second referendum on the terms and staying in after all that was down that seven point gap though was down from 19 points uh in december so a narrowing of the gap as remainers has become increasingly in the mind of having a second referendum but if we look at some YouGov numbers this question about whether um britain was right to leave or wrong to leave or i should say right to vote to leave um, forty-three percent say right to leave, forty-three percent say wrong to leave, fourteen percent say don't know. Um, and that's that's just basically not changed since the referendum. What what do we make of those numbers though? Because I suppose there's two different ways of interpreting them in my book. One is to say that nothing's changed, to to quote Theresa May, and that people are just pretty much set in their ways. There hasn't been a move against Brexit. But the other way is to say, well, hang on a minute, it's neck and neck in terms of whether this was right or wrong, and. If there ever was to be another referendum, that would be neck and neck as well. So, I don't, I don't know. It's, I'll come to you, Leo. On this, it's a strange one for me because yes, I, I could totally agree with people that say um, there is a sort of get on with it mentality. But there's also enough underlying uh, data to suggest that if it ever did, if we ever did revisit the whole Brexit question again, Lord knows what would actually happen. I mean, what do you take? What do you make of some of the public opinion around this?
2: Yeah, I, I don't think it's surprising that that nothing has changed in public opinion because not much has changed in the real world. OK, so the pound has, pound has slumped. So people going on holiday are paying a bit more. Uh, so that's one thing. I think there's the beginning of the policy debates now. I think chlorinated chicken is the first of these ones that people are going to be beginning to see something tangible in the real world that uh, uh, shows what this is actually might mean. Uh, so possibly, I mean, look, chlorinated chicken in itself isn't going to sway public opinion, but it's perhaps a taste of things to come. (laughs) Uh, Very good. I know, I know. Um, How long have you been saying on that
0: one? (laughs) Uh, Um,
2: Look, um, I mean, the point about uh, this being neck and neck, I think, I mean, that's right, but obviously the other side of this is, if there's a referendum on staying or leaving, it's not going to be a rerun of last time, because... The options aren't going to be the same. Uh, We'll have a specific set of of proposals on the table for what leaving would look like, but staying isn't going to be the same as staying um, on the previous terms. You know, there'll be things like we we I imagine wouldn't have the rebate anymore. Um, You know, there might there might be uh, other other rights that we negotiated that we no longer have. I mean, it's going to be a different EU that we would be voting to stay in. So I don't think polls on that. Uh, that relevant at the moment because you know that it's the terms of the deal that we don't know against the terms of staying that we don't know so i'll be a bit wary about reading too much into the numbers for and
0: that. i would say before i bring you in rob i would say if i'm a Brexiter right now that's exactly what the the kind of underlying message you want to be putting out there which is that basically the ship has sailed now um, article 50 can't be revoked in a way that means everything just goes back to normal because you know i'm one of these people as you both know that i mean i voted remain but i was kind of very half-hearted about it perfectly relaxed about brexit personally but then at the same time i have this view that well specific promises were made um about immigration yes but also about public services and about um uh, sovereignty or whatever um and if those aren't met, if those promises aren't met, then it's perfectly legitimate to say, hang on a minute, you've won a referendum based on promises that aren't met. Maybe we should uh, revisit uh, the question. Now, of course, if they are met, then it sort of takes everything I've just said off the table. However, if it turns out that actually going back to normal, as it were, doesn't exist, then I'm kind of like, well, we just have to get, make, make the best of it, aren't we? Whatever that means. So I guess the easy way to nip this in the bud is just, is, I guess, what the Tories are doing. And that's to say, well, the decision made now with no turning back. Um, and also, I guess the only observation I would have is that surely it's only a Labour government that's ever going to revisit this. The Tories aren't going to, are they? I mean, Rob, what do you make of all these debates? I mean, are, is it a distraction really just to be talking about whether people can, re- uh, Britain will remain after all?
1: Uh, it's not a distraction. It's an interesting argument, but I think uh, both of you are right. I think uh, it's very hard and people, even people that See, you know, privately might want that outcome to say uh, we should. The people were wrong to vote in the way that they did. Um, I think people tend to take a view which is let's move on. And so there's a big difference between are you satisfied with the way that things are panning out, and do you want and go? Do you wish that things had happened differently, and do you want another referendum, as you say? And I think. Unpicking the difference in those kind of also sometimes just the nuance of the question. So were Britain was Britain right to vote to leave or whatever is it's quite a different question to um do you wish that we'd remained or whatever. So um and yeah, ultimately the question isn't on the table. Yeah. Like n- nobody is Labour didn't argue for that in the last election. Even the Liberal Democrats didn't really argue for a second referendum. I mean, it was somewhat I mean it was quite clear that the Lib Dems were against Brexit, but how they were going to be against Brexit was kind of, A, not particularly looked into, and B, um, I'm not sure was entirely clear, certainly to people um, voting. So I don't think it's a, it a realistic prospect. Um, I think all the movements, you know, are, will be, the most important stuff will be, and if you're a Tory remainer, you can already see a lot of this in place now, which is kicking as much of the pain as far down the road as possible. So what that transition deal looks like what specific you know in the sense concrete things get and I hate the word repatriated, but I can't think of a better one
0: uh
1: on whatever it is, uh february twenty nineteen uh and then sort of seeing where it where it, where it lands there, i think until as you as you rightly said until what is uh concretely happening in the article fifty you know deal and what is uh a realistic prospect for in, you know in a sense negotiating some new relationship with the european union i don't really take a lot of heed in, in in those specific polls i think the conversation is much more interesting when it's about for example immigration versus um economy or when it's about uh you know sort of carefully worded questions about you know sharing sovereignty versus you know um you know not uh so much um when even uh, and uh, leo says is uh, uh sort of it's not going to be the be all and end all but we've seen how emotive very specific issue debates can be and so chlorinated chicken i mean if that's the first of that was whoever it was that leaked that as a thing or whoever it was who was idiotic idiotic enough to sort of brief that that was something that was on the agenda of a u.s trade deal i mean it's a part of it is about the season that we're in but That's been a pretty powerful media story Mm. that I think has had a fair amount of pickup.
0: Well, it's about the... um...
1: Quite neatly crystallizes a lot of issues. And as we've seen today, crystallizes a division within the cabinet, which is, if you're Liam Fox, you are very, very, and of that ilk within the Tory party, you're like, yeah, we want a US trade deal. And oh, come on, chlorinate chicken. It's not that big a deal. We've all had chicken in the US. It hasn't killed us. Whereas if you're like the representing the farmers lobby or the minister for DEFRA, as, as is Michael Gove, Or if you're like one of, you know, the sentimental members of the British public that, you know, where animal welfare becomes the most important thing in your life when it's in the news. You know, that's a big deal. You know,
2: Um, I I think you raise a really interesting point um, uh, mentioning Gove there. Um, I mean, as you guys know, I work on environmental issues quite a lot. And um, he's just made this speech um, about the environment in the UK after Brexit that has been probably... I think it's fair to say the best regarded uh, Tory environment secretary's speech, um, certainly since 2010, um, you know, for sort of in in living memory. Um, I think what he is starting to do is sketch out some policy specifics that when people are talking post-Brexit, or 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 in the next couple of years about what Brexit will mean in practice. He's going to have produced a bunch of things that Brexiteers will be able to say, look, this is what we are now able to do. And they might be, in the grand scheme of things, if you put them all together, less important, less big deals than some things that will be lost. But at the very least, it's going to uh put some stuff in the other column that if there were ever to be a debate about britain staying then there would be things that, that uh, brexiters would be able to say well hang on we're going to lose these things because we can't do them in the eu um and i think it's you know it's it's very interesting to see michael gove of all people being the one who is now able to do this it's sort of it's funny how the natural uh, next step of getting kind of getting into policy specifics like it, this of, of
1: post brexit it's funny how well, he was, but he's but it, But he's the minister for one of the most direct producer interest groups in terms of farmers, which is where he's coming from on this chicken thing. He's also like, whether you agree or disagree with his positioning, an incredibly bright guy who gets what the landscape looks like and where the opportunities are to make something of it. And he's like fundamentally and personally wedded to the idea of Brexit. So he's kind of got, you know, if anybody's got a kind of responsibility to try and articulate what a kind of, positive upbeat agenda that gets somewhere beyond the kind of may and davis kind of sound bites. then it's him and so um you know I, in a sense i'm not surprised what i am reasonably surprised is to hear you say that it's been a well-regarded speech by as it were stakeholders within that kind of what i imagine for gove is a pretty hostile audience and I mean, we saw jay rayner's kind of uh commentary on being invited to the meeting um on twitter i think over the last week or so yeah, I mean, you know. essentially, the the only
2: criticism people are making of it is whether it's deliverable. I mean, yeah. sort of as a set of aspirations by the environmental world, it's been very highly regarded.
0: Well, if Michael Gove ends up as the hero of the environmental world, we'll know that politics has gone topsy-turvy. I want to finish the last couple of minutes just by thinking about the future. And when we come back in September and I guess for the rest of the year, what it is we're 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 kind of um, looking out for. It's very, For me, it's, it's very difficult to um not not keep an eye out for which of these Tories are jostling for position although I suppose it's, it's likely to be pretty quiet for the time being as was Rob alluded to earlier while people are um while we're going through the process of negotiating Brexit but you do wonder whether you know a few tactical interventions here and there for someone might end up you know jockeying them to the head of the queue I'm certainly keeping an eye out for who might emerge that we haven't thought of so far because I think that the um the Conservative Party's problems, as we've alluded to in this podcast, is largely that they don't have a ready-made, um, off-the-shelf successful replacement for Theresa May. So therefore, the, to follow that thread through, either one of two things happens. Either one of these flawed replacements replaces her at some point, or there's someone that emerges on, on the rails and becomes a sort of g- a great young hope for the Tories. Um, I'm, I'm going to be keeping an eye out on where that goes. I mean, who, wants to take, who wants to take this one? I mean, Leo, what sort of things are you looking out for in the last um last couple of last few months of the year or second half of the year?
2: um well it's it's on a point that we we sort of touched on a bit a bit already that um the idea of labour trying to undermine the sense that the Tories are, are governing competently. Um, number that really jumped out at me uh, from that GQR poll I mentioned was this question of um, which parties are seen to have a good track record in government. And proportion of people who said that um, that describes Labour quite or very well was thirty one percent. Proportion who said the same about the Tories was forty one percent. So already the Tories have a ten point gap. And then among people who just voted Labour, only sixty one percent say that Labour has a good track record in government, and eighty four percent of Tory voters. So the last seven years have left the Tories with a much better reputation of governing than Labour has, even among their own supporters. Now, that seems to me to be a pretty fundamental barrier for Labour of getting back in government and a pretty strong um defensive thing for the Tories of staying in power. So I'll be interested in watching those numbers and seeing if Labour can shift it to, to being not just the Tories are nasty, but the Tories are just bad at governing.
0: And Rob, final, final word to you. We're all obviously going to be watching the voting intention polls to see kind of... um uh, where they go and if there is any breakthrough for Labour or things go go back to how they were. Um, but whether, whether watching numbers or just watching the political landscape more generally, I mean, what sort of things are you looking out for for the rest of the year? Uh,
1: well, I think to, to pick up your question on uh, Tory leadership contenders, I suppose there's sort of two things. Uh, one is, I think that there will be some form of reshuffle in Theresa May's government. Um, and I think it will be the most significant reshuffle of a prime minister that I think I will remember since kind of the late Thatcher and and early major years in terms of its significance for the future of the country. Because I think in that that piece will be a lot of things contained. Um, So that's one piece um, of it. And so whether Johnson goes, whether Javid goes, so whether she kind of turns on the kind of alternative power centres or whether she kind of hugs them, I think, will be will be fascinating. Um, the other piece, and I think I mentioned Sajid David there, because I think the announcement this week on, on House, on the uh, ground rent um, freehold, leasehold piece, whilst technical, I think is a really interesting example of the kind of policy agenda that Theresa May might well be kind of trying to look to advocate um, alongside dealing with the sort of Brexit nightmare that she's inherited, which is a sort of an interesting one—a sort of almost Roosevelt-esque kind of, um, you know, taking on sort of vested interest type piece in a reasonably soft way. I mean, Taylor Wimpy had already set up a fund to try to compensate people for these things, but um, it's a nice, neat way of, you know, taking on a kind of almost like a consumer rights type issue, um, and and you know, robbing the Tory party, trying to, you know, chip away at the Tory party's image of being the nasty party. And for vested financial interests like you know FTSE 100 companies whatever and for the little guy who's getting ripped off um by them so i think it'd be interesting to see more of those policies and where they're coming from and who is responsible for them um you know we've seen about three or four of these kinds of policies coming out um since the election and i think there'll be a lot more of that um over the course of you know before the end of the year um so who it is that's advocating them and the extent to which they do or don't clearly have theresa may's kind of personal support
0: will be interesting Yes, uh, lots to keep an eye out for when Westminster politics returns in in the autumn. That's all we've got time for for this week's uh, Political Betting uh, Polling Matters podcast. Big thanks to Rob Vance and Leo Barassi for joining me today. And that's all we've got time for for the next uh, three weeks or so. We're going to take a a short hiatus. Um, Last summer, as I mentioned, we were on all the way through August because of so much going on. Feels like there's a bit less going on um, at the moment. So we're going to take a few weeks off of our buckets and spades and uh, head on holiday um, and we'll be back in the autumn to look at more polling, more politics and to see what's going on with uh, in, in Brexit Britain. Of course, I say this now, who, who knows, this time next week, Donald Trump resigns and we're back online. But if not, uh, and if things do carry on as calm as they are, then we'll see you in a couple of weeks.